0: You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities.
1: Uh, But I think that that that's maybe how you could see oil outperforming gold and and bringing that ratio back somewhat in line uh, over the next, you know, six months, let's say. Uh, at that point, you know, I think gold would represent a much more attractive investment. We do have gold in the portfolio. We have about 13 or 14 percent. You know, full gold weighting for us is probably 25 percent. And what's keeping us, you know, those, those incremental 10 percentage points uh, is likely uh, or is due to the, the fact that the gold oil ratio is so stretched right now.
0: Welcome back into Mining Stock Education, I am your host Bill Powers, thanks for tuning in yet again today. Today's show is brought to you by Trilogy Metals, a copper-dominant polymetallic developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. Recently Trilogy received a positive record of decision by the Bureau of Land Management for an access road to open up the Ambler Mining District. This road now is going to make possible not only Trilogy's current development projects, but also future deposits the company believes that it will discover on its properties here. and one of. Trilogy's Trilogy's projects, the Arctic Project, just put out a positive feasibility study with all in sustaining costs regarding copper, net of byproduct credits of only US 98 cents per pound copper. It's an open pit amendable project with grades typical of underground mining. Trilogy's ticker in Toronto and New York is TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. Well, in today's show, you will be hearing a macroeconomic perspective and resource sector investing insights from managing partner Adam Rosenswag of Gehring and Rosenswag Resources Fund. Adam is a CFA charter holder with years of experience investing in and managing money in the natural resource sector. Adam, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. Happy to
1: be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And I'd like to start off by understanding what differentiates you and your fund and your approach from that of your competitors in the resource sector?
1: Well, I think probably, you know, how long we've been doing this and how long we've been sort of dedicated to doing only resource investing. Uh, I've been um, a resource investor exclusively since uh, 2007, but more importantly, my partner Lee Gehring has been doing this since 1991. Uh, So he first managed all of the Prudential Natural Resources funds from 91 to 05, and then he ran a multi-billion-dollar natural resources fund over at Chilton Investment Company, uh, which is where I worked uh, with him uh, first, uh, beginning in 2000. He started that from 05 to 15. So we've really seen a lot of cycles. Uh, you know, we've seen bear markets, um, you know, before, particularly the uh, terrible gold bear market of the late 1990s and I think that that provides a lot of really interesting perspectives you know particularly when people uh, come away and say things like uh, you know oil is an uninvestable asset here you know oil uh, is going to lead to stranded asset bases and effectively is, is a worthless uninvestable asset and, and I think we're a bit uniquely positioned because we've seen uh, people talk that way before and and I think most interestingly, in the late '90s, everyone said that gold was the uninvestable asset class. You know, it was a, an asset that had backed central bank uh, currencies uh, 30 years ago. At that point, you know, starting in 1970, we obviously decoupled from gold, so it had been 30 years since gold had sort of played an official monetary role. It had sold off 75 percent in the last 20 years from 1980 to 2000, and it was thought to be really uninvestable. Uh, But, you know, we felt differently at the time, or my partner Lee rather felt differently at the time. And since then, you know, believe it or not, over the last 20 years, gold has been the best performing asset class over the last 20 years. So we've seen things like this before. We've seen massively negative sentiment before. And I think we, we have a pretty unique ability to Try and really focus on the fundamentals instead of getting caught up in the market psychology.
0: Would you say with your approach that you you take a top-down approach? You start with the macro perspective. Yeah. So everything that we
1: do always starts with the top-down approach and with with a macro perspective, commodity by commodity. And what we look for is, you know, we're value investors, and we think that the best time to find value in the commodity space is when a commodity market or subsector is really out of favor, when people have little to no exposure, um, valuations are cheap maybe not on things like price to earnings, because a lot of times at the bottom, companies don't have any earnings because the commodity price is so low. But on things like price to nav or, or what have you, you know, there's a lot of value in this space. And what we do then is we roll up our sleeves and try to do a lot of uh, original research at the commodity supply and demand level. And we're able to usually uh, to come away with sometimes things that are very, very different than the consensus opinion. And And we have a pretty good You know, long term track record of being able to identify those big inflection points like gold in the late 90s or copper in the mid 2000s and oil in 2007 and again in 2017. Um, So everything starts with the top down. Uh, But then once we've done, once we've figured out where we want to be and what commodities we want to be invested in, uh, and I should point out, you know, we can go anywhere, we can invest in any commodity. Uh, We don't have to look like any index, we don't, in fact, uh, look like any of our competitors. Um, and for instance, you know we have about 15% of the fund in uranium stocks today. I think the benchmark weight of uranium is zero. Um, so you know, we don't mind looking really, really different uh, f- from, from the index or from our competitors. And once we've set those top-down weights or those sector weights, we then try to dig in on the individual stocks. And we try to do a lot of work, about half of the time that we spend and half of the work that we do. Uh, is on the bottoms up. And, and there we're looking for you a know, really good understanding of the asset and trying to really understand, uh, based on our long-term view of, of the commodity price, where we think the value in those individual assets are. So that, that's really been our approach. And it's been that way pretty consistently since Lee started in the early 90s.
0: Adam, would your uranium positions, would that be the most contrarian position in your fund right now, would you say? Well, I think probably
1: the most contrarian position would be our oil investments, uh, just because People really hate energy right now, and they really hate oil. And like I said, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is becoming uh, that these assets uh, are, are completely uninvestable. And um, while while that's really frustrating for for an investor uh, with a long term time horizon, you know, it really in, in sort of a backwards way, we love it when people say that something like oil is uninvestable. I mean, that's that's kind of the fat pitch that we try to wait for. Um, and and so I think that's probably our most contrarian. Position, you know, we have about 50% of the fund, five zero, in uh, energy related securities. Now, that's oil and gas and some oil service as well. In uranium? No, that would not include uranium. That uranium would be aside from that. So that would be, you know, oil and gas energy. And, And so that's probably the biggest contrarian position from a sentiment. Perspective from just the weightings and in the index and the weightings in people's holdings and stuff like that. Uranium probably is is the most uh, different, I suppose. You know, like I said, most funds out there have no uh, exposure to uranium at all. Uh, the benchmark, the IGE or the S and P North American Natural Resource Stock Index, has zero weighting. Uh, in uranium, um, and so from from just that perspective, that's probably the biggest you know difference between us and the uh, and the various uh, indexes and the various funds that um, you know, for better or worse, you know end up being tied to those indexes.
0: So Adam, the left wing political movement, the Green New Deal and such, that poses no threat to your investments, I take it then, in your perspective?
1: It, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think there's certainly from a sentiment perspective and from a uh, short term incentive perspective, there's definitely uh, some things that could happen depending on the outcomes uh, of the election. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's really not a a feasible long-term wide-scale replacement for uh, oil use as a transportation fuel and certainly uh, in in the petrochemical and plastics industries and things of that nature. So, you know, I think what we come back to is you say, okay, you know, you can have a lot of rhetoric, you can have a lot of, you know, uh, government incentives and pushes and things like that. But at the end of the day, if if you don't have a feasible alternative, um, you know, I suppose you'd end up uh, you know th- those incentives and or incentives for for let's say electric vehicles and or penalties for internal combustion engines would be so value destructive across the whole economy uh, that you know at a certain point I guess that would be pretty pretty difficult and 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 you know ultimately not feasible. Now does that mean that that it can't you know be a big headwind? I suppose it could, but uh, but but ultimately I think where we come out on that. Um, is that the technology on the electric vehicle front is just not, simply not there um, it, to really replace internal combustion engines on a wide uh, spread basis. And the issue, the bottleneck, uh, we've written about this. So I'd invite you, you know, to please go check out our website where we have all of our old uh, research published. We've written about this extensively. Uh, we've done a lot of research on it. And a lot of people from the industry have reached out to us and said, you know, you guys are on the right track. Um, But the bottleneck really comes down to the batteries. You know that that's been a big, big, big problem, uh, and that's going to continue to be a big problem. And until you have a a breakthrough in batteries, which we don't see on the horizon, uh, it's going to be difficult for uh, electric vehicles to be anything more than you know what we like to say the the playthings of the rich. You know they're they're very, very expensive. They're they're fun to drive, but you know ultimately to make a big uh, dent uh, in sort of mass adoption. Um, you're going to need to see a breakthrough in batteries, and the reason for that is that based on the current technologies and based on the uh, you know how you're going to generate the power, it's more energy efficient you know soup to nuts to to move someone around in an internal combustion engine than it is in an electric vehicle. And people don't realize this, but half of the energy that you'll spend over the life of an EV, the total energy uh, that is in the manufacturing and in the charging, half of that. Uh, we estimate comes in the form of manufacturing the battery. Uh, and so, you know, that's a huge amount of energy that you don't necessarily see, you're not aware of because you're not plugging it in, uh, but, but it's been spent before the car ever rolls off the lot.
0: Adam, I live in Metro Detroit, which of course is home to the big three who produce primarily combustion engine uh, vehicles. And there is one Tesla charging station about 20 minutes from me. And I, it might be the only one in metro detroit which is five plus million people and so when you talk about bottlenecks i've always looked at it as an infrastructure problem because there aren't charging stations there there's not the setup to deliver that much electricity if five million people or five you know were driving electric vehicles so you see it more in in the battery rather than in the infrastructure even more so
1: well listen it's a good point um you know if if you were to roll out electric vehicles on a widespread basis today, you'd immediately run into massive uh, both transmission, generation transmission, and then distribution. You know all three would be a problem. We're not generating enough electricity. Uh, you know I think an average household, it would double their electricity consumption. Uh, and you can see obviously in some places in the country, notably in California, which ironically is, is now pushing forward with this you know no internal combustion engine sales after twenty thirty. Uh, but you know, on on hot days in California, you have rolling brownouts, and so I'm not sure how people think that you could double the amount of electricity demand uh, on the grid. Um, so it's both at the generation side, then it's the grid itself, and then it's obviously the charging points. Uh, now, having said that, I think that if electric vehicles did make economic sense, if electric vehicles did compete with a energy intensity, you know, full cycle energy intensity with internal combustion engines and there was a huge economic incentive i don't mean subsidies and sort of fake incentives but i mean a real economic incentive to switch you know you would build out that infrastructure it might not happen overnight but but eventually if it made sense to do it you would do it i'm a firm believer in that you know particularly in this country where the profit motive still helps drive investment and things like that um you know you would get it done Uh, i think the problem is twofold you know today obviously it's an infrastructure problem on day one uh, but it's also it's also that it doesn't make a lot of energy sense or a lot of economic sense. Uh, then, of course, you know, you run into the problem of how's that electricity generated. If you did this whole exercise uh, and you were generating uh, the electricity, for instance, from coal, uh, you really wouldn't have any co two savings at all. and in fact, it might actually be worse. Um, you know, obviously, the only source, the way we see it, the only source of sustainable, Carbon-free power uh, is uranium and nuclear. You know, I think it's really clear. Um, renewables have a really big problem; they're not consistent. They don't always generate power. And so you can you can sprinkle some renewable power on top of a conventional grid because you have coal, you have gas, you have nuclear providing that baseload power. Uh, but but you can't sort of replace all of those things with renewables because you don't have any way to smooth out the dispatches of of, of those. Uh, wind mills and solar panels. Um, So again, batteries would fix that, but we we definitely don't have grid level um, feasible battery storage at this point. It's way too expensive. Um, And I don't think we ever will, Uh, certainly not in the lithium ion um, channel. Uh, There's some other technologies that are taking radically different approaches. Some of those I think could work. Uh, but definitely not in the lithium-ion side of things. Um, You know, they're basically, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but they're way too expensive. Uh, And to have a huge battery that could help back up a power grid, uh, they're way too dangerous.
0: As in the vanadium redux battery, or what battery would you say is dangerous?
1: Well, I think lithium-ion in general is is a fairly unstable, uh, is an unstable uh, battery technology.
0: Right, thus all the warnings before we get on an airplane, right?
1: Exactly, you know, and it's so funny, you know, those... Those came out of nowhere, um, you know, a couple years ago. And it, there's a gentleman that we speak to, you know, very, very uh, prolific battery expert out of MIT. His name is Professor Donald Sadaway. I'd highly recommend uh, anyone who's interested to go go on YouTube or go on the internet to check out. A lot of his stuff is is uh, made available online. Um, but he was the first person that that actually told us about that. And, you know, this was going back, I don't know, three years ago. We had dinner, and he said, you know all these airlines are about, if you want to know how dangerous it is, all the airlines are about to tell you that, you know, basically if you drop your phone, just forget it, it's gone. You know, we'll, we'll dismantle the plane and get you your phone back before we want you to try to reach for it yourself. Um, and sure enough, you know, within a couple of weeks, all, all the airlines had adopted that language, but no, it's, it, you know, it, it, it's rare, but, but they are, they have a huge amount uh, of, of potential energy and the, the risk of, you know, thermal runaway events, aka, you know, explosions, uh, is not insignificant. And you can see, you know, even on a Tesla battery, um, you, there's videos of, of them uh, igniting It doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. And when it does happen, it's quite, uh, it's quite a hot uh, and difficult to control fire. Now, if you want to multiply that on the scale that you would need for to back up the entire power grid, I mean, I think the potential there is catastrophic. So, you know, even if it's an unlikely event, I think that risk is far too great.
0: Well, Tesla, speaking of Tesla, we we just saw they had their battery day. What is your analysis of Tesla's impact on the mining industry and mining stocks?
1: Well, I think, first of all, you know, obviously the market took the Tesla battery day as a bit of a disappointment, and I would tend to agree with that. There had been talks in the months leading up that Tesla was going to uh, and you know, make big inroads on this million-mile battery that that CATL has been talking about. Um, from from what I know about that, there's a lot of secrecy obviously around it. But from what what I can ascertain about that, um, that looks to be you know largely some legacy technology. There, uh, you know, there's some there's some technologies going back a number of years uh, of lithium. Uh, uh, Lithium phosphate battery, lithium iron uh, iron battery. I can't I can't remember now, uh, but but that is basically I think what what most of the people in the industry agree is probably what CATL is trying to advance with their million mile battery. And there's some really fundamental problems with that technology. Um, and so uh, you know I think that I was waiting as as well as a lot of people to see if in fact some of those uh, challenges had been overcome. Uh, at the Tesla Battery Day, and and obviously there was really no mention of that million mile battery at all. Um, you know what there was talk about was sort of threefold. Uh, you know the first the first thing that 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 Tesla talked about uh, was moving from a wet coating to a dry coating technology in their manufacturing process, which there you know we can uh, we we can it's like get, probably getting a little bit too in the weeds. Uh, and, and then you know vertical integration of their supply chain. Um, which you know strictly speaking is really not a, a battery um, advancement that's just more sort of a corporate decision uh, and and so it obviously had big impacts I think in, in in some of the corners of the battery metal world but ultimately I think that you know, this big battery day that everyone was expecting you know huge new advancements and developments um, you know Tesla really really didn't make make much of a splash there at all and if you want to be sort of cynical about it I, I thought that some of some of the more interesting commentary uh, was that they said, you know, in I can't remember, it was three years or five years, uh, you know, they expect to make a breakthrough in batteries such that a twenty-five thousand dollar Tesla will be a reality. Uh, which, you know, reading that the other way says that, you know, today they don't have the necessary battery technology to make a low-priced Tesla the reality that that they had claimed it would be with the Model Three uh, so many years ago. So, you know, I, I think that it was sort of a, a, a little bit of a disappointment. Um, and I think really, you know, with my experience with batteries, it's an incredibly, incredibly challenging uh, field of engineering uh, and chemistry. I think that the people that are involved in the battery industry all deserve, you know, our huge amount of, uh, of admiration, because what they're doing is really, really, really difficult. And for some reason, the investment community um thinks that it's really easy. And they think that you know you know, give it give it a few months and the next sort of breakthroughs around the corner. And that's just really not been my experience when you sort of dig into the industry at all.
0: Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered near surface. One grab sample assayed An astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right. Ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. You follow the oil to gold ratio. What do you think the oil to gold ratio is telling us right now?
1: So, you know, we we do look across the whole natural resource space. So we're involved in the energy markets. We're involved in the mining markets. And like I said earlier, we can go where we see there's value. Uh, So we're gold bulls and and we've been gold bulls for a while, Um, you know, our analysis is predicated on something I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with, which is just the value of gold in the world versus the value of paper money and paper assets in the world. And one of the things we like to look at is the treasury's gold holdings versus the amount of dollars in circulation. And that's at a record stretched valuation that that's arguing for a much higher gold price. Now I should point out that when, when Lee uh, called a turn in the gold market in the late 90s which was a really good call you know gold was 275 and he said it could go to 2500 uh, over the next 10 or 15 years um, that was all based on this similar analysis of looking at paper assets versus the value of the gold stock and so you know we remain bullish on gold because of that you know we think ultimately at the end of this cycle you know gold can be many thousands of dollars an ounce it might even be more than 10,000 dollars an ounce if, if you apply some of those metrics uh, however, the only thing today that gold is very, very expensive relative to uh, is energy prices. And we do track the gold oil ratio over time. Uh, there is a very stable, um, albeit it's a wide band, but you know, 90% of the time, uh, one ounce of gold can buy between 10 barrels of oil and 30 barrels of oil. And when it can buy 30 barrels of oil... Uh, oil is thought to be very cheap, and oil goes on to do very well in the coming years. When uh, one ounce can only buy 10 barrels of oil, um, oil is thought to be very expensive, and, and oil tends to underperform, both underperform gold, but also underperform uh, its own long-term track record. And then you know sometimes actually turn uh, underperform or be negative in an absolute sense as well. So that's the ban, 10 to 30. Uh, And obviously, in this last cycle, back in April, when oil turned negative, uh, you know, that that ratio went to infinite. Um, But realistically speaking, uh, you know, leaving that sort of negative day aside, uh, you're talking about a ratio that's even today is is, you know, at 50. uh, And that is uh, extremely, extremely, extremely uh, a a, a wide record set by wide margin. So. That argues that energy, uh, as difficult as, as it is to sort of stomach and as difficult and as out of favor as it is, will outperform uh, in, in the coming, I don't know, call it, call it year two years, something like that. Uh, that's just based on the historical relationships. Now, what do we think internally? You know, what do we think could be sort of the path forward? Uh, well, I think that if you look at the energy markets today and the oil markets in particular – Um, supply is falling at a very sharp rate. Uh, You you actually, in the last monthly reading, you did see a one-month uptick in supply, but that's because a lot of supply that was taken offline back in April was turned back on um, more recently in in, in August and uh, eventually in September. And so you got a little bit of a rebound, but the trend right now is that supply is falling quite dramatically. And the reason it's falling is that we're drilling You know, 80% fewer wells than we did at the beginning of the year. There's simply no way to hold production flat uh, with the rig count that we have operating today. And we're seeing that through the numbers, like I said, with the exception of the latest one, which had a little bit of noise in it. Um, So supply is coming down. Demand has rebounded quite sharply. It's now plateauing a little bit here. Uh, People are worried clearly about a second wave of the coronavirus. Uh, Although I do think that even if we do get a big second wave, uh, we're not going to go back to the same level of lockdown we did before. But, you know, that's weighing on people. So in the short term, demand is going to be uh, driven by COVID fears. But the more structural issue with the oil markets is, is on the supply side. And it's the fact that supply is falling quite sharply and will continue to do so. So I think that that argues, you know, inventories of oil are coming down around the world and sharply in the U.S. So I think that argues for, you know, a bit of outperformance here in the next few months. At the same time, if we do begin to get an abatement uh, of the coronavirus, or if we do get some successful vaccine results, uh, I think that gold is set for a little bit of a pullback. I think that there's a little bit of a, um, you know, end of the world premium uh, or feeling in the gold price, and and I think that if you got had an announcement, for instance, that you know, one of these vaccine candidates was entering distribution and things like that. I have no doubt that you would see, you know, a couple hundred dollars potentially come off the gold price in the short term. Now we would be aggressive buyers of gold and gold shares uh, if that happened. Uh, but I think that that that's maybe how you could see oil outperforming gold and, and bringing that ratio back somewhat in line uh, over the next, you know, six months, let's say. Uh, at that point, you know, I think gold would represent a much more attractive investment. We do have gold in the portfolio. We have about 13 or 14 percent, you know, full gold weighting for us is probably 25 percent. And what's keeping us, you know, those those incremental 10 percentage points uh, is likely uh, or is due to the fact that the gold oil ratio is so stretched right
0: now. How do you factor in a possible recession and economic contraction to your bullish view on oil? Because some analysts I've listened to, they're not bullish on oil due to their expectation that the economy is going to contract.
1: So it's a, it's a great point and it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, incidentally, so clearly a a widespread and particularly a global coordinated recession is not good for for global oil demand. Uh, although I will point out that you know in two thousand and eight in the global financial crisis uh, and then more recently and in, in earlier this year with with the coronavirus, um, I think a lot of people's models between global GDP. And oil demand are uh, lead to conclusions that, that basically uh, demand will fall more than it actually does. And I think it's interesting the, the difference I think between when the, those models were sort of first built and calibrated and more recent times has been the rise of emerging market oil demand, which has a little bit of a different relationship with GDP uh, and and energy consumption. So obviously, you know, widespread economic malaise is not good for demand. Clearly. Uh, but for instance, if you look at if you look at the uh, impact of the global financial crisis, you know, oil demand from peak to trough uh, only fell a million and a half barrels a day on I think it was a ninety million barrel base at that point, and they recovered back to their old all time highs eighteen months later. If you go back to the recessionary period in the early eighties, uh, it took uh, oil demand fell peak to trough not by you know. Two percent, but by ten percent, and it took a decade for oil demand to reach its old highs. So, you know, back in the '80s, it took it took a decade and ten percent peak to trough drop in oil demand due to economic issues Uh, in the global financial crisis. Instead, uh, that was you know closer to less than five percent peak to trough, closer to two percent peak to trough drop, and it took eighteen months to regain the old highs. Um, You know, similarly, when you look earlier this year, and Everyone was expecting 30 million barrels a day of peak to trough oil demand destruction because of COVID. That number, in retrospect, was closer to 10 million barrels a day. So they were wildly off. And and I think the difference there is is underestimating uh, the impact of the emerging markets and the oil demand and how things have changed a little bit. But the other thing that I would say that was sort of interesting, if you look at natural resources broadly, uh, there was... Three periods where resources became extremely cheap, and resources both the commodity prices and the commodity stock prices became super cheap relative to the broad market. And those three times represented excellent moments to become natural resource investors. Now, incidentally, in two out of those three times, uh, the the decade that followed was very poor from an economic perspective and from a from a you know recessionary perspective. Uh, and yet, resources and resource stocks still did really well. So what that tells us is actually the biggest determinant of uh, natural resource outperformance actually tends to be how cheap they are going into the cycle. And as of today, they're as cheap as they have ever been. So I think that that should give a little bit of a buffer as well. And just for just for your uh, listeners, you know for the record, the three periods where commodities became as cheap as they are today or, or nearly as cheap, because today we've blown through all the records, was in nineteen twenty nine. 1969 and 1999 so you know in 1929 you're on the verge of the depression a decade later um, you know a decade later the S&P was still down by 50% gold stocks had obviously surged in value because uh, the gold price had been raised and, um, and and gold shares were you know considered this haven to to go into during the depression but interestingly enough even oil stocks a decade later with the S&P down 50% oil stocks were up uh, you know, oh, oh, through through the decade from 1929 to 1938, but that's amazing er, when you really think about it. Similarly, you know, in 1969, 1970, commodities got really, really cheap relative to the broad market, and by 1980, you know, that had been a period of horrible economic malaise. Um, you know, stagflation. Uh, the U.S. was under multiple periods of, of recession uh, and 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 you know, very sort of lackluster growth. And yet, resource stocks were the place to hide. And oil stocks did very, very well, of course. And then from 1999 uh, to 2010, um, you know, that was a period where, uh, where again, you know, the period subsequent to that, the period 2010 2012 to today, that was much more of a period of strong economic coordinated global growth, as opposed to that, you know, 99 to 2000. Uh, to two thousand and seven period uh, and or two thousand and ten really uh, but resources did very well then too, so I think that while you know certainly on the surface and intuitively, if you have a big recession that doesn 't see how raw material uh, stocks could do well uh, and, and I get the intuition there, but actually historically you know it, it What's more important is how cheap they are going into the cycle.
0: Before you go, I got to get some insights on gold mining and how you approach investing in the gold stocks. You mentioned that about 25% or a quarter of your fund is in gold-related assets. So tell us what you look for in a gold stock, both positively and negatively.
1: Well, so I should point out, first of all, I said, as of today, that's not the case. I think that would be our long-term full allocation to a gold weighting. So as of today, it's, it, it's not that. Um, and what's holding us back again is just how cheap oil is relative to gold or how cheap expensive gold is um, you know what we look for in, in gold uh, in, in gold in our gold investments or really our mining investments in general is is we look for companies that are trading at deep discounts to their net asset value using our long-term view of the commodity price now that's sort of easier said than done what does that ultimately mean particularly in the mining space uh, I, I think that you know one of the things that we debate all the time or, or people ask us all the time is, you know, would you rather have a good, a good asset or a good quality management team? Uh, and I think, unfortunately, the answer is probably both. You know, we've seen good management teams saddled with bad legacy assets, and it's almost impossible to generate value there. And conversely, we've seen, you know, really, really strong assets run by the wrong managers uh, that that are effectively you know uh, unable to realize that growth but ultimately you know we're looking for really good assets we're looking for assets that have the ability to grow uh, we're looking for assets I, I personally like to see fairly robust grades uh, in the projects that we look for um, because I find that that gives you a wider margin of error. Although there's some caveats to that, you know, really high grade nuggety deposits I find are fiendishly difficult uh, and, and there's always ends up being uh, disappointments there. Uh, but you know, in general, I do like a sort of higher grade to help with the margin. Um, and, and really something that we think has been extremely important uh, in the last you know, 10 years when capital has been so scarce, Uh, We like to look for projects, you know, on the development side, we like to look for projects that can find financing, because a lot of these things, they'll come in and these companies will talk to you and say, you know, we have a a project that has an NPV of, you know, five, six hundred million dollars. Our market cap is 20 million bucks. So, you know, it could be a huge, huge win if, if. uh, if that NPV is right, you know, but it's a billion dollars of capital or a billion and a half dollars of capital to build it. And the banks just won't lend against that. You know, The banks won't, won't provide financing uh, on something like that. And so what we've come to, to realize is that the relationship between the upfront capital cost and then the total NPV of the project, that's a really good indication for something that the banks uh, will, will be able to finance. And so we like to look at that as well, because we've seen a lot of projects that look good on paper, but you realize that they're just never going to get the financing. Um, and so and so that's something that we look very, very closely at. You know, What is the NPV of the project or the net present value of the project relative to the upfront capital? Uh, we also look for projects that I think can grow. Uh, Because I think that, you know, it's sort of a cliche thing, but um, but a lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of times good projects, and good assets get better and bad assets get worse uh, over time. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, And so, you know, particularly you, you can just once you start looking at some of these projects, some of them are very, very clear that, you know, the deposit continues along strike and you know you're going along this huge fault zone and you can just see it going on you know just from the air for miles and miles and miles um, you know it's uninterrupted it's nice thick uh, veins so if you can step it out 100 200 meters you'll be adding tons pretty quickly um, you know that seems like a good a good shot for a um, deposit that'll continue to grow and, and only get better and i should point out um, you know and this is all Disclosed on our holdings and things like that, but I did not realize when you when you uh, invited me today that Trilogy is uh, w- was sponsoring today's event. So we actually do hold shares in Trilogy. And we we do like
0: that deposit. Adam, you offer research for retail investors or investors, private investors, such as myself, but you also manage money for high net worth individuals. So please share a little information with my uh, listeners where they could go to learn more about what you do.
1: Yeah, well, actually, we, we, we have a mutual fund that's available to retail as well as institutional. So we have a $3,000 minimum in our retail class. We try to make it as accessible as, as possible. Uh, we do manage money for, for large institutions as well. Uh, everything, all the information is available on our website. Um, the uh, advisor website, which is where all of our um, research uh, is housed and things like that, is uh, gorosen, goroze uh, And then uh, if you're interested more in the mutual funds, uh, that's on a website, gr-funds.com. Uh, but if you type in Garing and Rosenswag uh, into Google, um, you'll, you'll probably get there. There, there. There's not a lot of Garing and Rosenswags out there that aren't us.
0: I will put the link to that website as well in the show notes. And if you'd like to reach out to Adam, there is a contact uh, tab right there at the top of the homepage that you can click on and get in contact with Adam. Adam really enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much.